Hello, and welcome back to What is California? Episode 2 is a new podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Earsdale, and this week we have Marisa Lagos. She's a politics correspondent for KQED in San Francisco. She co-hosts the Political Breakdown podcast and is on KQED and many other shows that you might have heard on your local NPR affiliate in California and even national shows. She's frequently a guest talking about California politics and other matters related to our fair state. So I'm excited to talk to Marisa and it is awesome to have her on the show. We'll get to that conversation in just a few minutes. First, I just want to thank everybody who listened to episode one of What is California with Governor Jerry Brown last week. Uh, It was a thrill to talk to Governor Brown, and it was as much, if not more, of a thrill to hear all the positive feedback and comments and just good vibes around What is California. I'm so excited to have the podcast finally live. If you have subscribed to the podcast, thank you. If you have subscribed to the newsletter, thank you. If you have followed us on Twitter, thank you. Any or all of the above, I am grateful, and I hope that this podcast going forward fulfills all your expectations, enlightens you, illuminates, maybe makes you laugh a little bit, and um, yeah, that you'll share it with your friends, family, loved ones. I suppose if you really don't like this show, maybe you can you know share it with your mortal enemies. We'll get some use out of it that way, but I want everyone to find some utility in what is California, and hopefully uh, we'll just get better. And uh, just keep growing that audience. So you're in the first wave, the vanguard of listeners, and you are much appreciated. All right. So as I've mentioned before, What is California is not really supposed to be a news podcast. It's not really a current events podcast. There will be some overlap with current events for sure. Maybe like a new book that comes out or some topical conversation that you know relates to what's happening in the news. There's always going to be that connection, I guess, a little bit. But overall, we're just trying to get to the bottom of that enduring question, what is California? However, this week, we had a recall election. You may have heard about this thing. Uh, it was a special election putting to voters the question, should Governor Gavin Newsom be recalled? And if so, who should replace him? Those voters overwhelmingly responded no to the tune of right now at this recording on Wednesday afternoon, 64% to 36% that Governor Newsom should not be recalled. But even more overwhelmingly, Larry Elder, the Republican frontrunner, conservative talk show host, he pulled in 47% of voters on that second question. That's almost 2.4 million people and counting. So That's a pretty remarkable number. Now, as we discussed with Governor Brown last week, recalls are fairly common, at least recall efforts, right? Dozens of recall efforts have been attempted since 1960. Every governor in California has faced a recall effort, a petition of some kind. Only two have qualified, one in 2003, which was successful against Gray Davis, and then one in 2021, which was unsuccessful against Gavin Newsom. But in all likelihood, these recalls are here to stay. There have been movements among Democratic lawmakers now that this recalls behind us to maybe change the Constitution, put another ballot initiative out to voters to change the recall rules. Again, as Governor Brown said last week, and as most experts believe, that is going to be easier said than done. So I thought, who's an observer on the scene who can really help me and 
our listeners better understand what this recall meant for California, for the electorate, and for the future of the electorate, and maybe future political candidates, future governors, among other stakeholders in California politics. Marisa Lagos co-hosts the KQED podcast Political Breakdown with Scott Schaefer, and she is someone I've read, listened to, and followed for quite a while prior to KQED issues with the San Francisco Chronicle and the San Francisco Examiner, and is just a really astute observer and well-connected reporter on these matters. I thought, well, who better to ask what the hell this all means? And if California is as democratic a stronghold as it seems when you've got someone like Larry Elder on the upswing, and if California's GOP moderates actually have any chance at recovering after all of this, and if recalls are here to stay, and of course, hear a little bit about Maurice's own background. She's a California native, and we're going to hear her California story and also some of the things that she thinks is maybe most misunderstood about California and also hear what she thinks is California's biggest opportunity for the future and how the state can capitalize. So here is me with Marisa Lagos. Enjoy. Marisa Lagos, welcome to What is California? It's so great to have you here. It's been quite a busy 24 hours. How are you holding up right now? I'm good. A little tired, but you know, as political reporters, we always get the uh, adrenaline of election night. I would say this one was a little weird because we didn't think we were going to have to have an election night. So <laughs> there's, I feel like, and given the outcome of this recall, there's a little bit of like, why did we just have to do all that work? But you know, that's politics. We'll talk about that. Uh, before we get to the recall, before we get to your work, I want to talk a little bit about your California story. Where are you from originally? Are you a Californian, uh, native Californian? I am. Um, I was born and raised in San Diego. I was actually born to two native Californian parents. Um, My mom's grandparents were Armenian. So they came to Fresno uh, before the Armenian genocide. And my grandfather grew up there. And then um, my grandpa and my grandmother met at UC Berkeley. So deep, deep Bay Area and California ties on that side. And then my other grandparents um, settled in San Francisco. My dad's dad had grown up in New York. He was Mexican-American. Um, but actually, it's really interesting because both my grandfather on that side and my husband's grandfather both served in World War II and kind of landed, in his dad's case, briefly, but um, in San Francisco. So as we put down roots here, it's been so interesting to kind of like think about my dad growing up here and both of our grandparents, grandpas kind of like in their era being in this city. Um, so yeah, I've, I've basically like wended my way up the coast since I was a kid. Like I was born in San Diego, went to college in Santa Barbara and then ended up in the Bay area. What are some of the most noticeable ways that California has changed for you over the years? You know, there's the kind of normal stuff people talk about in terms of like problems. Um, Certainly the homeless issue wasn't as big when I was a kid. I feel like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's also the good stuff, right? Like when I was growing up, smog in LA was a huge thing. Um, You know, we were not as diverse as we are now, but I don't feel like the state has honestly changed all that much from my experience. Um, you know, I feel like California is, is, is a complicated mistress, so to speak, and there's always good and bad. And, um, you know, for my family and my extended family, it's brought an enormous amount of opportunity 
like I, when I go home to San Diego, it still feels a lot like the town I grew up in. What about the stories that your grandparents told you? I mean, you're a multi-generational California family. Um, did you get a sense of California at, at the time when they first got here and how it's changed since then? And have you, because you mentioned the relationship between yourself and the city kind of uh, in yeah. contrast to your family. I, I'm maybe curious about how that has all kind of influenced how you think about the state and its changes, if at all. Yeah, I mean, my grandfather, who grew up in Fresno, had just incredible stories about, you know, he was born in 1929. So telling stories of running after the ice truck in the 1930s and trying to get a piece of ice that slipped off. And, um, you know, his mother canned grape leaves in factories. And so, I mean, certainly that was a very different California than the one I grew up in. Um, you know, when I talked to my dad about San Francisco, which is the city I'm now raising my kids in, it, it was different because it was, so, you know, kind of more quaint, right? I mean, and he lived on the west side. They would ride their bikes everywhere. It was also the 50s and 60s, so, like, nobody actually watched their children. Um, <laughs> so it's hard to tell how much of that. Like, I feel sometimes raising kids here that it's not that, that life has changed. It's just that our perception has changed because in a lot of ways, you know, for all of the talk around crime and stuff, I mean, um, it's still a really safe place for most people. So I think, I mean, it's gotten bigger and busier and I think the world has changed. But um, yeah, it's it's been actually really fun because my dad grew up in the Sunset District, which is, you know, a little bit more kind of quiet suburban. And we've always been on more on the east side of town. So we've actually had this opportunity to introduce my dad to this whole side of the city that he never grew up in. Um, and, and just to explore these places that like, you know, when he was a kid, he had all these perceptions about like, oh, we can't go to the mission, we'll get beat up, or we can't go here, you know, or we just didn't even think about that side of town. Um, so I think like one thing, and I mean, just that's changed in life is that things are more accessible. Like whether you talk about the internet or also just like physically, like I think my kids have a much better sort of global sense of the city and state than I necessarily did when I was their age because we go everywhere, we drive places, we kind of don't limit ourselves to the kind of patch we grew up in, which I think um, was by necessity kind of what my dad and even my grandparents did. What's your earliest memory of California? The beach. Um, yeah, we grew, my dad's a marine biologist, so we spent a lot of time at the beach growing up. It's like, it is my happy place. Um, I have a really vivid memory of, I don't know if this is my first memory. When I was maybe three-ish, I was down in Pacific Beach with my mom and my sister, who was a baby at the time, and my mom turned to me and said, okay, we're going to pack up and leave now, and I just walked up, like walked away. And um, I'm walking up this path and this mom pulling one of those radio flyer uh, wagons comes up to me and is like, uh, what are you doing? Like, you're three, what, why are you walking around? And I was like, oh, I guess I can't find my mom or whatever. And she um, put me in the wagon, which I thought was a blast and took me to the lifeguards. And then I got to ride in the lifeguard truck. Um, and of course my mom was like apoplectic and I thought the whole thing was amazing. Um, so I think that's one of my early memories and then it's not California, California, but my family has a beach house down in Baja, like an hour south of the border in Baja, California. Um, and so a lot of my early memories are like tide pulling there and just kind of, you know, being being a kid at the beach and, and kind of not having a lot of structure, just being able to play. That kind of feeds into my next question, which is if you have a favorite or enduring memory of California. 
I mean, there's so many. You know, when I think, it's funny thinking about the beach, like my high school experience, I would say, is really also colored by that. We, even before we could drive, we would like scrounge for quarters and um, take the bus down to the beach where I grew up. And every summer it was like, we just picked a spot and everybody knew to come there. Um, and it was such a fun sort of free time in my life where, yeah, you just knew that if you showed up at this one street this summer, you would have a group of friends there. Um, and, you know, we were, we were kids, so we would just do stupid stuff. Like every time somebody got out of the water, somebody would uh, crouch down behind them and someone else would come up and push them over. We called it corn dogging. Um, <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that. Um, yeah, I mean, my family spent a lot of time camping also. So I would say the other thing is just sort of exploring the beauty and variety of the state is something that really um, sticks with me because I think I got a better sense of not just like San Diego where I was growing up, but but the entire state and really the Western United States from those road trips we would take in my dad's old VW pop-up van. Um, and driving up to like Bishop and stopping in these tiny towns and, you know, finding whatever treat they offered. I think like those are my happy sort of summer memories. Who are some California folks who've influenced or impacted you and who you are? Um, so my grandfather, who I mentioned, who grew up in Fresno, he was a, um, a professor at Cal State Northridge. He was... I mean, kind of a renaissance man. The guy, like, it's just incredible sort of looking at the arc of his life. He um, put together these award-winning anthologies. I should say, like, I am not unique in my family as an English major or a writer and editor. Um, and so I really think, like, he... And, and, and for me, like, his story is such the California story. Actually, both my grandpas. I'll start with him. My papa Dick, Richard Abkarian. But he, you know was raised in this family where he, like, they had nothing. They came from Armenia and he, he got a PhD and like goes on to have this really storied career. I mean, when he passed away last year, we just got letters and letters from former students and people who he had touched. Um, and he, he was a tough guy. He could kind of be a jerk, but, but I, I really sort of look up to him as, as what's possible. Um, and then I think my other grandfather was kind of a different story. I mean, he did not have like a kind of white collar career, but, but he was so, um, he was a huge part of my life because when I was a kid, my grandma got Parkinson's and they had to sell their San Francisco house and move to San Diego. And he was such a presence at my softball games and soccer games and picked, picked us up every Wednesday from school on early days and took us out to Jack in the Box for lunch. <laughs> um, so I feel like both of them, to me, are really emblematic of like the opportunity of this state and also some of the challenges. Um, and And just like something that's so important to me, which is that idea of like, not just family, but community and really fostering that in whatever way you can. One thing I've realized as I got older and, and moved to San Francisco is that you, yeah, you have to kind of like create those communities wherever you go. And I, and I saw that with both of them, even though I think for my grandpa who moved down from San Francisco, it was challenging because he was older and he had to actually leave a community here. 
when and why did you become interested in California politics? That's that's sort of I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I always I think I loved writing and I knew that I wanted to do something that had to do with writing. And I also realized pretty early on that it was probably not likely that I would be able to make a career like writing poetry, for example. Um, so I just started working first in high school and then in college at my school newspapers. And I just knew, especially in college, that I wasn't really interested in like covering campus news. Like I didn't care. Um, and so I was interested, though, in kind of covering the bigger community and the bigger issues. And yeah, I just started, I mean, my first, some of my first stories were like rec and park meetings um, in, in UC Santa Barbara or right outside of there. Um, and I just kind of got the bug. And it's something that I feel like kind of like a lot of things happen slowly and then all at once, right, where you're like, I like this. I'm good at it. I'm interested in it. Um, you know, to me, politics is everything, right? Like it it hits every aspect. And so being a political reporter, like maybe is a bit of a cop out because I never had to choose a real beat in the sense that like, you know, my colleagues that cover healthcare, they're very focused on that or the environment or whatever. I get to sort of be a jack of all trades in a way because the policy that's involved in covering politics and government spans the gamut. Um, and I probably have a little, you know, ADD or whatever. <laughs> so it's been a nice outlet for me. Um, and, and I think generally like one thing about journalism that I love and, and that politics really sums up is this ability that like both every day is different and I'm going to learn something. And also, um, just that I'm expected to sort of treat everybody with respect. So, you know, I, I always think about the fact that like, I have a job where I can go and like stick a microphone in front of the governor, but I'm also going to, you know, treat a homeless person with the same amount of respect if I'm trying to t talk to them and have them cooperate for a story. Um, and so like, yeah, to me, it's just, it's just the most sort of obvious area of actual impact. Um, and, and yeah, it's, and it, and it keeps my attention cause I keep, I get to keep learning. Were there any historical threads or arcs of California politics that you discovered on your path that you really wanted to follow in your work? You know, I feel like it's been a learning experience for me. I mean, I don't think we do a particularly good job of teaching, you know, state history in schools or a lot of history, quite frankly. Um, so I think one thing, the longer I've been doing this is like, I'm still learning. And every time I sort of learn more about one of those arcs, <laughs> I, I think I get better at my job. Um, you know, I feel like I sort of grew up with, you know, like most people do, sort of the idea of politics and history that is colored by your family and their point of view. Um, and the older I get, you know, the sort of more I'm able to just get a little more nuanced into that. I mean, my parents are, are pretty liberal and I remember reading or, you know, just hearing about, they were not huge fans of Ronald Reagan. Um, and I, I just did an interview with a, a reporter who wrote a biography of Nancy Reagan. And it was such a fascinating read to me because there's so much California history in there that predates me. Um, and like thinking about, I mean, the Browns, I think are a great example of just like, my, my continual education here, we're thinking about the state going from Pat Brown to Ronald Reagan to Jerry Brown and like how much 
just like, I mean, we think politics are crazy right now, but like that's some yo-yoing, right? Um, it would never happen today. Well, clearly, I, probably no, probably not. Although, you know, I don't think none of these candidates are, are Ronald Reagan either, right? Um, Wait, you're telling me, you know, uh, Larry Elders? Larry no. Elders? Yeah, not on the yeah. Ronald Reagan spectrum. Totally. Um, I, I think the like lore of California I grew up with was a lot sort of vaguer, more vague than what. Um, I keep sort of learning about as I push myself. Well, this is the morning after the recall election, obviously, and Governor Gavin Newsom handily withstood efforts to remove him from office. It looked a little close for a while, I guess, but then it was called for Newsom 13 minutes after polls closed. And it seemed like a big $300 million anticlimax. So looking back now, what are your first impressions, your initial impressions of what this says about California and California politics? We love direct democracy and we love to bitch about direct democracy. Like I feel <laughs> like it's such, it really is in our DNA here, right? That we um, constantly have these ballots, whether it's this recall or Schwarzenegger's or the like two dozen initiatives, you know, that we often see on big ballots. Um, and everyone every time is like, why are we doing this? This is crazy. But then if you turn around and say, so you, so you don't think we should have this? They're like, no, 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 no. We want this power. Um, so I think it's very much in keeping with the kind of like tone of the state and and the idea that, you know, for all of the grumbling we might hear about someone like Newsom or about the Democratic establishment, um, really in my time as an adult, this we've just shifted so much to the left here. Um, and, you know, I think that at its best, that means that Californians believe in like taking care of each other and want a government that actually does that. Um, I don't know if we're always successful at that. And I think a lot of the critiques, you know, held water because of the huge challenges we face. Um, but I, yeah, I just I every time we get through an election, I sit back and I actually have a lot of gratitude for how much folks do engage here. I mean, you know, the final numbers are still trickling in, but this is an off year election in September and we're going to have relatively high participation. And I, I, I to me, that just speaks to like for all of our divisions and challenges, like I do think people care and want to have a role in this in, in this in like in a say in the future of california does this recall or how it qualified how the petition qualified to actually even get on a ballot does that tell us anything about the ascendancy or reascendancy of republicans in california or is this just a fluke oh i i think this is like real bad for Republicans. I mean, this was their one opportunity. And it was a fluke in the sense that it was sort of this perfect storm. I mean, it's I was joking last night, like the pandemic got this on the ballot and then the pandemic kind of saved Newsom, right? Because they never would have had the time to get these signatures if the judge hadn't give, given the extra few months um, for collecting them which of course coincided with the winter surge, with the French laundry dinner, um, with sort of nationalization of this like culture war over masks and mandates and shutdowns. Um, so, you know, I think this was a missed opportunity for Republicans, honestly. I think that there is anger out there and a lot of, you know, people, again, like back to what I think is sort of our best uh, qualities, which is, I think there's a lot of empathy in this state. Um, 
when you talk about the homeless problem, I mean, of course, there's people who are like, just get them out of my face. But I think a lot of people are really deeply troubled by it because they care, right? And I think that there was an opportunity to really point out the the problems there. And instead, we ended up with like a fight over, you know, Larry Elder talking about women and, and, and all these distractions that... Um, yeah, I think it, it would have been a much different race if we had seen a coalescing around someone like Kevin Faulkner or even some challenges from a more centrist or left-leaning um, candidates that were not part of the Democratic establishment. Then you spoke with Kevin Faulkner, among other Republicans, uh, recently on your show Political Breakdown. And whether it's candidates like him uh, or Kevin Kiley or people who weren't even on the recall ballot, Assemblywoman Suzette Martinez Valadares, who's also a guest on your show um, from Santa Clarita, there is this moderate strain of California GOP politician that seems to have taken a real beating during the recall campaign, like you were just alluding to. And it's not there, Ronald Reagan, anymore, like you said. And knowing what we know about Larry Elder's substantial support in California, especially those numbers that came in for him, can those moderate Republicans regroup, or is that strain of moderate? California Republican just doomed? You know, I think they can, but I think it's going to take some real courage to sort of, to sort of push back the Larry Elder kind of Trump wing. You know, I think what you see here is, is similar to what you see nationally, where there is this base of support among the most sort of fervent Republicans. Um, but I do think that folks like everyone, well, maybe not Kevin Kiley. He's, he's, I mean, he's he's a wonk. He's probably more on the conservative side. But yeah, the Faulkners, uh, Valdette Martinez, I mean, they, I think there's an understanding of the fact that they're going to need to kind of temper this message to get a bigger share of the electorate. But they just keep getting kind of <laughs> overrun by this very vocal base. And, you know, people were like, well, why didn't the GOP endorse Faulkner? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a, Demo or a Republican convention in California, but the delegates at those conventions are not representative of, of I would say, the bulk of Republicans even or conservative leading voters. And so, oh, so what, do you, what do you mean? Um, they just tend to be way more extreme and way more kind of like, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like who goes to a party convention? It's always the most sort of fervent whatever True believers yeah but i think on the democratic side there's a little bit more um willingness to kind of like fall in line so to speak and you know you have the bernie wing and people agitating but there's still this sort of core support that lines up with i think the the establishment for lack of a better term whereas with the republican party it almost seems like the tail is wagging the dog and i think it really poses a challenge for folks like you know the party leader Jessica Milan Patterson who i know from my conversations with her you know is real conservative red meat republican but she's not necessarily interested in saying outrageous things just for the sake of the attention and she, I think, and others are stuck in this weird place where, like, they can't write off the Larry Elders and Trumps of the world because then they risk losing those fervent supporters. Right. Um, but by not doing so, they're also, I think, alienating a lot of people. And I mean, let's not forget, independents are like 24 percent of the electorate, 25 percent. So, like, there is an opportunity there for both parties. And I think Democrats have just done a better job of of getting those folks. I want to ask you about the Democrats now, because obviously as electoral politics and party registration go, California is a capital D democratic power. That said, 
it doesn't always feel especially progressive, maybe on paper, maybe the messaging, but you know, the policy and in practice, I'm not so sure. I mean, corporate interests still have a pretty outsized influence on climate policy. Um, there are these really old encrypted regulations and agencies that govern water policy. You've got liberal cities like San Francisco and L.A. rejecting progressive housing policy. And water policy. And water policy. Yeah, you've got mass incarceration embedded in the DNA of the state. Labor has a ton of power, but it hasn't helped you know, build houses near job centers. It hasn't closed the inequality gap. And you've obviously got these red districts all over the state, you know, maybe not super populated, but they're deep, deep red. Anyway, yes, California on paper is a blue state. But how blue is blue? Yeah, I mean, I think that... What we've seen happen in the last 10 to 15 years in California, as the state, you know, as the Democratic Party kind of expanded its reach, is you've almost seen parties within the party pop up, or at least factions within the party, um, which isn't surprising because, you know, to say that everybody within our political spectrum is going to fall within two groups is sort of insane, right? In a state of 40 million people, all with very different views on a lot of things. Um, so I think what we're seeing is, yeah, this sort of split between more progressive Dems who might be, I mean, the easy way to put it is, yeah, more labor and environment aligned. And then, you know, although labor can be complicated too, that's a whole, that could be a whole podcast in itself. Um, and then, yeah, more business friendly, sort of industry friendly, maybe what some people would say more establishment friendly. Um, and so I do think that that's the challenge. And I think that that's really Newsom's challenge moving forward because you cannot, you know, if you have a supermajority of Democrats, that is not enough necessarily to actually get work done um, when you still have all the same, you know, quote unquote, special interest up there. I mean, I also think some of this is just a problem of bureaucracy. This is a huge state. Our state government is huge. It is challenging to make changes in that kind of, you know, situation where you just like think about the hundreds and thousands of state workers who you know, clocking every day and, and from administration to administration are kind of just like carrying out whatever the mandate given to them. Um, I think it's all, it's all tied up. I mean, I know I, there's always this, I feel like every five to 10 years, the hair on fire, like California's ungovernable, it's a failing state. And I do think that that is sort of the challenge of this time um, for people like Newsom, for party leaders. And, you know, I think one place we could look for cues on like how to do it well would be Congress and Nancy Pelosi. For whatever you think of her politics, that woman has a freaking lock on that caucus and she knows how to get stuff done. And I don't think we've seen that type of leadership either in the legislature or from a governor in terms of just really exercising that type of like power based on sort of teamwork and understanding that like you are only as powerful as the coalition it's not just enough to have the seats in in the legislature or at city councils who are some of the californians you've met or encountered in your work who have really stuck with you i i would say first off like a lot of the quote unquote real people i interview um are often the folks that kind of uh, yeah, cut me deeply. Like I, I interviewed this dad a couple of years ago about this fight over child support payments being garnished. And I, it's somebody like that who like allows me to come into their home and opens up their life and story to me um, is huge. I mean, beyond politics, some of the stories that got me my start um, are 
unfortunately, like really horrific events. When I was in college, uh, a kid named David Adias ran his car into a crowd in UC Santa Barbara and killed five people. Um, and I covered that as a college student through the trial. And I'm still in touch with some of the parents who lost their kids in that. I mean, you know, the San Bruno blast uh, for the PG&E did and the people I met who you know, we're watching their neighborhood burn, the wildfire survivors that I have sat down with over the years um, who have allowed me to sort of bear witness to their pain. I mean, I think those are the people that ultimately stick with me more. I mean, of course, there's like the kind of obvious answers, right? Like the Newsoms and the Kamala's. And um, I really always enjoy rapping with Jerry Brown. I mean, the, the man is an institution and rare in politics to have somebody who's so interested in this sort of philosophy. Former State Senator Holly Mitchell was on our broadcast last night. I mean, she is one of like my favorite humans. She's just like so real and so interested, I think, in the work as opposed to like the the glory of it in your experience what would you say is the thing that people most misunderstand about california and how would you set them straight it's just a big complicated place i mean california is everything la is everything right like people who say i hate la or i don't like california i'm like what do you what do you not like do you not like the beach do you not like the redwoods do you not like skiing do you not like cities do you not like rural america farmlands i mean we have it all and that is a hard thing to get folks to agree on anything from. Um, my experience living in San Francisco is deeply different than my friends who live up in the foothills. Um, I do feel a deep defensiveness of my home state. Um, I feel like every, you know, however often the rest of the country like wakes up and realizes California is here and it's mostly to like gawk at us for something like the recall election. Um, but I just feel so lucky to have been born and raised here and to be like giving my kids, even for all of the challenges. I mean, there's been these moments where I'm like, oh my God, are they going to have the same experience I did because of the wildfires? But then we have a summer like we just did where we were like swimming up in, you know, Nevada County, um, in the, in the foothills and going to our friend's farm in Placer County and then driving down the coast to Morro Bay and Venice Beach. And my kids are learning to surf and hike and, um, you know, ending up in San Diego, being on my dad's boat. I mean, I really would challenge anybody to find a place where you could do all the things and, and have the richness of experience that you do here. I mean, just the food, like in the city, you know, I, I just, um, I am, like unfailingly a booster for the state. Anyway, so that's my rant. <laughs> what do you think is California's biggest opportunity in the future and how can we capitalize? It's cheesy and it's a democratic line, so I'm not saying this to be a partisan, but um, I do think our diversity is our strength. That's something the governor says, and I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I grew up, you know, I was in, in high school in the 90s when um, Prop 187 was on the ballot. And looking at the arc of this state and how we've gone from that era of, you know, tough on crime, kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric to, for, again, all of our problems, which I acknowledge, a place where we have, you know, embraced criminal justice reform and really thought deeply about some of those issues around just, like, celebrating our differences. I think 
to me, that's our opportunity. And I think that that should span the political spectrum. I mean, the truth is when you go to more rural areas that might have voted to oust Newsom and actually sit down and like talk to people, we are all humans. And I think that like one thing that my job has taught me again is like giving that like respect and just like listening. So I think that if we can do a better job of actually hearing what people are saying and maybe trying to find common ground where it exists, um, we might actually be able to tackle some of these challenges. And I really do think that the future here, there's still so much potential. It's not a place that we've ever sort of given up on that potential in the past. And I, and I really hope we don't in the future. Marisa Lagos, thank you so much. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. And that is the show. Thank you to Marisa Lagos for appearing on episode two of What is California? I thought that was really enlightening. And I look forward to seeing how this all unfolds, the post-recall atmosphere leading into the election next November. The regularly scheduled election here in California should be a doozy. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Aresdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can follow us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia. Our Substack newsletter, if you'd like to subscribe there and get the podcast there and get some weekend reads, that's whatiscalifornia.substack.com. You can support What is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. You can email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Send compliments, complaints, love notes, whatever strikes your fancy. That's where to find me. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked What is California, I'd love it if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That's a wrap. I will see you next week. In the meantime, remember, keep your eye on the bear. (laughs) 